in a hundred years, it would be fun to look back and count the number of PhD theses and that come from mission data as well as samples, return samples. Inflow channels, deltaic sediments, and impact craters. There's a lot of exciting geology to be had at NASA's new landing site, Jezero Crater. But what sets it apart from the other amazing places on Mars, and how does NASA even go about making that kind of decision? We'll talk geology, astrobiology, sample science, and landing site workshops. All this and more on today's episode of the We Martians podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the We Martians podcast. I'm your host, Jake Robbins. You know, we normally only do 17 episodes in a year, and if you've been counting, that means that last episode about Insight's successful landing on Mars would have been it for season three of We Martians. But there's been so much going on with Mars these days. Insight's amazing journey was so loud and exciting that it nearly drowned out NASA's selection of Jezero Crater as the next landing site for the upcoming rover Mars 2020. It's big news, and I didn't want to let it wait until the new year to talk about it. So, surprise, bonus episode for 2018. You know, I tend to get reflective this time of year. Uh, With another season behind us and 2019 lurking ahead, I like to take stock of the work we're doing here and think about how to make it better. I've got some of my own ideas, but I also really like to hear from you. So I've created a quick listener survey to try and capture some of that. It's short, it's only 10 questions long, it'll take a couple minutes of your time, and it'll work on your phone. So if you could fill it out, it might give me a nudge in the right direction as I plan out the next year. You can find it at wemartians.com survey, and I would really appreciate your feedback. That's wemartians.com survey. And lastly, before we get to today's conversation, I want to remind you about our amazing sponsor, Mova Globes, who makes these awesome decorative globes. They don't have a single cable sticking out of them, so they're very clean, look great on a desk, and they rotate inside of their own shell, powered only by sunlight or ambient light. Mova has over 40 different designs, including a pretty big repertoire of space globes, and I wanted to feature one today that was topical. So as I browsed their site, my eyes fell upon their Neptune design, which is made using Voyager 2's flyby data. It's this brilliant blue, and it shows that small, dark spot, that kind of cyclonic storm that raged as our pioneering spacecraft flew by. Voyager 2 is now in the interstellar medium. It's just made the news recently, but this design is as sharp as ever. So you can get your own Neptune Mova Globe or any of their other designs at bit.ly slash Mova Martians, linked in the show notes as well. And if you use the code WeMartians, you'll get 10% off your order, and that ships anywhere in the Americas. And if you're a patron, head over to patreon.com, log in, and you can find an even better code. So that's it. Let's talk about Jezero Crater. 
Selection of a landing site for a flagship NASA mission like Mars 2020 is no small task. Workshops bringing together hundreds of scientists have been happening for around four years now. Proponents of one site or another argue the merit of their chosen locale, and the community votes based on very specific criteria which ones are better than others. It's all very scientific, as you'd expect from, well, scientists. And in each successive workshop, the pool of candidates gets smaller and smaller as weaker ones are weeded out, until a final recommendation is submitted to NASA, who ultimately makes the final call. And on November 19th of this year, that call was Jezero Crater. I wanted to learn more about the crater and why it was so special, so I figured the best person to talk about it would be the scientist leading that charge of advocating it through all of these workshops over the years. All right, so we're here with Tim Gouge. Tim, how are you doing today? Good, how are you, Jake? I'm superb. This interview seems to have been in the making for quite a long time. I think it's been two, two uh, Learner and Planetary Science conferences where we've talked a little bit about your work and getting you on the show one day, but we were just waiting for an important announcement from NASA. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be here finally. <laughs> um, so before we get into uh, the Mars 2020 rover and the landing site, Jezero Crater, I, I like to learn a little bit about the guests. So maybe could you talk a bit about your background and kind of how you got into planetary science at Mars? Sure, yeah. So um, I grew up in Toronto uh, and went to university at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, and there I um, did engineering and the way the engineering program there works is you have a, a general first year. So you come in and you haven't declared a, a type of engineering that you're going to do. Uh, and as a kid, I'd always been interested in space and um, and building things and engineering type uh, things. So I thought actually probably I was going to go into aerospace engineering. Uh, and then from there what happened is i took a first year geology course uh, that everybody in the engineering program had to take and was completely wowed uh, and so opted into geological engineering as as my degree um, and then from there i went through and had a professor in my uh, fourth year ron peterson who sort of uh, let me know that there are a, a lot of people um, out there working on uh, planetary geology and so that sort of blew my mind that that was uh, uh, something that one could do. Um, and so I started researching graduate schools, um, found uh, a program that I really liked at Brown University, um, was fortunate enough to, to get in there uh, and worked with Jack Mustard and Jim Head doing my PhD on uh, um, ancient lake deposits and lake basins on Mars. And so... Uh, sort of a uh, serendipitous route to uh, where where I ended up, but uh, I feel very fortunate uh, and, and have been really happy with with what I've been doing. Yeah, well, it looks like I mean I've looked at your your website and some of your your background and stuff, and you've been able to work on some really cool things with some really cool people. So yeah, I mean I, I, you know Jim Head is is no small person to work with, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, it was really. Um, fun to do my PhD with him. He has uh, a lot of connections in the field. Uh, and so that opens a lot of doors, which is really great. I, uh, embarrassingly enough, I didn't really understand when I was applying to graduate school, um, the, what, what his, uh, 
level of stature in the field was. So I, I sort of came into it blind and was a little surprised when everybody kept saying, oh, wow, Jim, he, you know, he worked on Apollo and he's sort of been around for a while. So it's kind of uh, went into it backwards for me, but yeah, it all worked out great. That can sometimes make it a more genuine relationship, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And then uh, you're at the University of Texas in Austin now, right? Do you want to talk about your role there? Yeah, so I uh, after I finished my PhD in 2015, um, I was looking for a postdoctoral position. Um, and I'd been working a lot on uh, the Martian sedimentary rock record and surface processes on Mars. And so wanted to do a postdoc um, at a place that focuses a lot on uh, sedimentology and surface processes, but um, from a terrestrial perspective to sort of broaden my um, research experience, uh, to work with some terrestrial scientists, see what we can apply um, more about our, our, you know, the fundamental and cutting edge research from terrestrial um, process sedimentology to Mars, and also vice versa, what we can say uh, about processes on Earth by looking at Mars. And so uh, I ended up as a postdoc uh, at UT Austin here, um, working primarily with David Morig and uh, a number of faculty here as well. Um, and so I was on a fellowship for a couple years here, and then I was fortunate enough that uh, they had a faculty position open. open. Um, last year there was a search, and um, I... I put in an application and was fortunate enough to get the position. So I'll be starting as an assistant professor at, at UT uh, in January here. That's awesome. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, been a really fun place to be for a couple of years. And so I'm excited to, to start a, as a more um, permanent position uh, in January and start teaching and building a research group of my own. I have a lot of uh, friends at UT Austin in that department, so uh, I feel like I have a, a strange connection with that school, even though I've never been to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a campus is lovely, department's great, everyone's very friendly, and it's a great city to live in. So it's not a bad place to be. Great. So let's talk about Jezero Crater. So uh, just for context, this was selected as officially, finally, after many years of debate, um, the, the landing site for NASA's upcoming Mars rover, the Mars 2020 rover, which is kind of the successor to Curiosity. So it's a big rover. And um, you've been uh, heavily involved with uh, promoting Jezero as a, as a candidate. So maybe we could start with um, just you know, if I know nothing about Jezero, what's uh, what's it about? Like, what what is this place? What's the elevator speech for for you know what's going on at this uh, location? Right. So um, it's a forty five kilometer diameter impact crater. So it formed um, as a meteorite or asteroid hit the surface and formed this uh, significant sized uh, impact crater. Um, the precise age of when the crater formed isn't very well constrained, but probably uh, it, it must have been before uh, sort of 3.7 or 3.8 billion years. Um, and what's really exciting about this uh, location is that the impact crater has been uh, breached by inlet valleys. So there were uh, there are remnants of ancient river valleys that flowed into the basin and also a river canyon that 
drains the basin. So two flow in from the sort of north and west and one flows out from the, the east. And so water was flowing into this uh, crater basin. Uh, and so it was a standing body of water as a lake. And, and we know that it must have been a lake because uh, it has this outlet canyon. Uh, and the only way that you can form that is to actually fill up the basin with water and overflow it and cut this canyon. And so it was a, a hydrologically open lake system. You can think of the North American Great Lakes as an interconnected chain of a series of uh, open basin lakes. Um, and the really spectacular uh, thing about this site is that at the mouth of the western inlet valley is some spectacular outcrop of uh, deltaic sediment. And so this is a rock outcrop that forms as a river flows into a standing body of water. It's carrying sediment. It hits the, the that standing body of water in the lake, rapidly slows down and deposits all of the sediment in the basin. So the Mississippi River Delta or the, the Nile River Delta are famous examples of this. Uh, and it deposits material and builds up new land. Um, and as this sediment is turned into rock over time, it gives us uh, deltaic outcrop, which is what we have uh, remaining in the basin today. So that's sort of the main feature that's uh, drawn a lot of interest uh, over uh, the last uh 10 plus years since it was discovered in uh, 2005 was the first uh, the initial publication discovering this by Caleb Fassett and Jim Head um, and they discovered this deltaic deposit and, and then since then we've learned a lot more about the site and uh, it turns out there's a lot of other really interesting rock units within this uh, crater so there's carbonate units uh, which are um, quite rare on Mars and have the opportunity to, to give us a record of atmospheric evolution and uh, water atmosphere interaction uh, and, and also a unit uh, on the floor that we think might be um, volcanic in origin, although its origin is less clear, um, but we'll be able to find out when we, when we get the rover there. So uh, that's sort of the, the general summary. We have these three major units that we're thinking about, carbonate bearing uh, lithology, deltaic uh, outcrop and this uh, floor resurfacing unit that that is um, seemingly volcanic or is hypothesized to be volcanic at least wow okay um th so those kind of features you described are they maybe all three of them are they rare on mars or are they kind of common and, and jezero special because they're all together in one spot yeah that's a great question so um the from uh, the most common certainly would be this type of floor resurfacing unit. Uh, we see this in a lot of basins um, across the surface of Mars. Um, and so that's certainly something that is um, uh, we, we see in a number of locations. And so it actually might be a good representative uh, location to go and study what, what these uh, rocks are. Uh, the carbonates uh, are, are not very common at all, although the general region uh, that uh, – the Jezero crater is in, which is sort of um, just inside the Isidus Basin, um, which is one of the largest impact basins on Mars. That has uh, uh, some of the largest exposures of carbonate, uh, much of which exists in the watershed of Jezero crater, so uh, where water and sediment would have fed into the basin uh, over three and a half billion years ago when the lake system was active. 
So carbonates uh, are cer don't, certainly don't appear to be common on the surface. Um, and river delta deposits uh, are, um, you see them in, in certainly uh, a number of basins, um, but we see much more of the record of erosion from water. So we see some of the first evidence of, of uh, the idea that there was flowing liquid water uh, on the ancient surface of Mars are these deeply incised or deeply etched river canyons. So one can think of like the, the Grand Canyon, which is being cut by the Colorado River. Some of these canyons are the scale of the Grand Canyon, although many of them are much smaller. Um, but these big incised uh, erosional features uh, and the, the depositional record, so where all of that sediment went, is less clear. Uh, and Jezero is one of these examples that has uh, uh, spectacular uh, exposures where you can clearly look at the uh, stratigraphy of the deposit, so the way the layers are oriented with respect to each other, uh, and tell that this was actually a, a river delta forming in this standing lake. Um, over three and a half billion years ago. So it is some of the best exposure of river delta outcrop on the surface of Mars, certainly. Um, but we think this process must have been uh, more active. We just can't identify the record of it. Um, and then I've, I've also read a lot about the importance of uh, that watershed that you mentioned. So all the kind of channels that were feeding into this crater, they, they stretch pretty far. And that has kind of an impact on some of the sediments you'll be able to study, right? Yeah, so uh, that's one of the the really uh, what sets Jezero apart from some of the other uh, deltaic and um, uh, river fan deposits on the surface. Um, and so the the watershed is very very large. Um, I think it's about thirty thousand square kilometers. I'm um, and so it's a very significant area, and it drains uh, this terrain that has a, a really large diversity of um, minerals within it. Um, and some of those minerals, so there are carbonate-bearing terrains within the watershed. Um, there are also uh, some of the alteration minerals. So one often talks about clay minerals, which are... Um, or phyllosilicates, which are minerals that formed as uh, primary igneous or volcanic minerals interact with water. Uh, we see large exposures of that in the watershed. Uh, and we think this is sitting in some of the most ancient crust of Mars, uh, dredged up by the Isidus impact basin something like 3.8 or 3.9 billion years ago. Um, so very, very old material that's being uh dredged up in terms of the um, uh, the ancient crust of Mars. And it, it is very altered. And so these are the types of materials that uh, you want to explore. And that as, they, as the rivers in the watershed sort of cut into the surface, they integrate sediment from all of this, um, this region. And so they sort of collect a sampling of what's in the watershed. And you can go and... Uh, and look at that in place in the delta. And so you can imagine that as, as the Mississippi River uh, draws sediment from across 
much of continental North America and delivers it to the Mississippi River Delta. And so you can sort of get a sense of what materials lie within the watershed by looking at this one uh, smaller subset of where, where the sediment's being deposited. Wow. Okay. So that's really cool. So basically you have like Isidus is a, is a giant impact. So basically this, this huge impact tosses a bunch of old rocks all over the place. And then all these channels bring those plus all the other rocks in, in minerals in those areas all into one spot where you can land a spacecraft is essentially how I'm hearing it. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so it's a gold yeah, mine. Sort of, it, that's one way to think about it. Uh, yeah, it, it's really, um, Sedimentary systems like this are, are great places to study because they're uh, integrators of sediment. So they bring in sediment from lots of different places. And so you can look at all of these different rock units in one place. Are, are we good at kind of disentangling what the information we find, like if they're all mixed up together? Yeah, that's a really great question. So there's a whole... Um, there's a whole subfield within the geosciences that thinks about that, uh, doing what, what's called provenance studies, which is trying to understand where these materials came from. Um, on Earth, one thinks about this a lot for how uh, different parts of a watershed might draw sediment over different, um, different time periods. And so we could imagine trying to do the same thing in Jezero, seeing if as we go up in the section and as we sort of look at different layers of the sedimentary rock and we get into younger and younger materials is the composition changing or not or is all is it the same regions continuously contributing material to the to the deposit and so we can do uh, we we will be able to do those types of uh, at least basic provenance studies with our understanding of what the composition of these units are from orbit and comparing that with what we see on the ground and so we will be able to at least get a first attempt at trying to disentangle that. Hmm. So the, the Mars 2020 rover, I kind of want to talk about the mission itself. Mm -hmm. um, it has, you know, objectives, the science objectives, and these were decided before the landing site was. So, um, you know, I'm looking at their site here. So uh, it wants to science objective A is geology, B is astrobiology, C is the sample caching and D is preparing for humans. So I'd like to kind of hear your take on how Jezero supports those objectives, like specifically, like what, what about Jezero makes those kind of achievable? Right. So it's, um, so I'm trying to recall what the specific objectives are. The first one is, a uh, understanding the geology, uh, of, uh, yeah, geologic record uh, within the field exploration area um, and evidence of astrobiologically relevant ancient environment and geologic diversity. Right. Well, we talked about geologic diversity. That one sounds right. pretty, <laughs> pretty straightforward. And, but Right. And then the astrobiologically relevant, relevant environment is the lake within which these sediments were deposited. So we know that these materials were deposited in a lake. Um, some of the work we've done about the composition of the materials uh, suggests that there, the lake wasn't um, excessively saline or excessively salty, uh, probably closer to neutral pH than very acidic. And so this uh, is likely represents a very habitable environment, the lake itself. Um, also, one of the things people have been interested in recently is whether the, the crust of Mars might have been a habitable environment. And so the fact that Jezero is dragging in material from the ancient crust 
we also will have the opportunity to address that question of whether uh, there there might be any biosignatures um, contained within the sediment uh, that is brought into the to the basin. And I think the second objective is is about uh, exploring uh, for astrobiology and potential biosignatures, I believe. Yeah, um, habitability, um, search for materials with high, high biosignature preservation potential, and search for potential evidence of past life using observations regarding habitability. Yeah. Right. Right. So the um, high biosignature preservation potential is really one of the key aspects of Jezero. Um, and again, it goes back to the same idea of bringing in material from a large area. Part of the, the process when this sediment is transported uh, through water, um, there are hydrodynamic processes as well as uh, chemical associative association processes um, where any potential biosignatures, so we think about this analogous to Earth, where organic matter on Earth uh, tends to get concentrated in very specific parts of sedimentary deposits um, because they have a specific grain size and they get attracted to some of these clay minerals and so they get bound up. And so um, you're actually concentrating any potential biosignature in the watershed uh, in very specific horizons, what we think of as the um, lowest energy parts of the deposit, um, the offshore types of, of deposits uh, in the, the deltaic sediment or deltaic outcrop. And so uh, this concentration aspect of the, the potential biosignatures is a huge, um, exciting aspect. And really, um, one of the reasons Jezero is, does such a good job at, at, at addressing the Mars 2020 mission goal. So very interesting site with lots of geologic diversity and lots we're going to understand about the geology of early Mars. So understanding how water was uh, moving sediment around, what the floods were like that was moving water around, what the early atmosphere was like. Uh, as captured in the, the carbonate deposits, what it is that uh, formed this resurfacing floor unit. Um, but then you can add on to that uh, these very interesting geology questions. You can add on the uh, astrobiology exploration questions of uh, very high preservation potential. And, and lake deposits and, um, and delta deposits on Earth are some of the, the highest uh, uh, organic show some of the highest concentrations of organic matter um, that we see in the terrestrial rock record uh, and so it's really exciting potential for um, both organic matter concentration and bi potential biosignature concentration as well as this uh, this really exciting site from a geologic perspective and so it it's really a balance between those two goals and I, and I think uh, Jezero does a really good job of satisfying both of them, which is um, at least why I would intuit that it was uh, ultimately selected as the landing site because it does a really nice job of balancing both of those right, right. Uh, mission goals. Um, and the samples is obviously a, a key part of the Mars 2020 mission. And um, in in my own reading, you know, uh, the the other candidate sites like uh, both Midway and Northeast Sirtis um, had a really um, uh, appealing uh, sample return, you know, scenario. But this sounds like it would be pretty useful as well. Like, you know, compared to just a remote 
um, spacecraft and getting all your data remotely. What is it about the Jezero samples that you're excited about? I mean, tons of things I'm excited about the Jezero samples. Um, so the looking at these uh, at these offshore low energy parts of the deltaic deposit is going to be incredible seeing if there's any potential biosignatures in there seeing if there's concentrations of non-biogenic organic matter in there so or organic matter that sort of just rains down on the surface of mars um, much like it does on earth we have organic matter influx from space that's not uh, biologic in origin, um, but seeing if that gets concentrated and how the two might compare, uh, and, and you know, the search for the search for potential biosignatures on another planet is uh, incredibly exciting. Um, <laughs> and so, so this is the type of thing that uh, can only be done with the degree of confidence that one would want for such a large question of was there life on early Mars. That question has so much weight associated with it that one really wants to be able to to show that from multiple ways uh, and in multiple laboratories repeating the same uh, the same type of analyses to really get uh, a very solid answer. And so that's one of the things that these samples are going to be fantastic for. Um, getting into some of the things that uh, personally I'm very interested in, I'm I'm most excited to see what the fluvial stratigraphy looks like. So how um, how can we try to recreate the river flows that formed this deposit? And one of the things I, I'm really curious about it, that I think return samples will, will give us an answer to is actually what's holding these sedimentary rocks together. We don't have a very good understanding of how sediments on Mars go from loose piles of sediment to rock. Um, and so Getting an understanding of that, I think, will be really interesting. Um, looking at the carbonates, that's going to be also incredibly uh, exciting. Um, carbonates, as I, as I said earlier, um, have the potential to record the atmospheric composition from over three and a half billion years ago. And understanding Mars's atmospheric composition is one of the huge unknowns uh, in early Mars science. And trying to get at that uh, from remotely sensed data is very tricky uh, but we can subject samples in labs on earth to very detailed geochemical and isotopic analyses where we can get a better handle on what the early atmospheric composition might have been like that could help us and solve then, like the the warm and wet or, or cold and dry kind of thing right one would hope that that would give um i mean Solving that problem is going to take a lot, a lot of uh, answering some questions. Maybe <laughs> it will. So what I would say is it will help provide a lot of very hard constraints. Right, right, right. Um, so it will certainly improve our understanding um, of of what that early uh, environment might have been like. And was it was there a thick enough CO two atmosphere to have liquid water on the surface or not? Um, one of the other things uh, that carbonates in particular uh, uh, are able to do is record uh, water-atmosphere interactions. And so uh, if the carbonates are precipitated from liquid, um, either in um, fluid in the sort of 
pore space or void space of sediment or fluid or from a lake column, if those carbonates are, are precipitated directly from the water, uh, there are measurement techniques that actually let one constrain the temperature of that water. Uh, and so that right there, we know obviously it's liquid water, it's above zero degrees C, but the difference between three degrees C and 23 degrees C is very significant, in again, in terms of understanding the, the early Mars surface environment. Uh, and so that is another area where I think these carbonate deposits are, are going to be really informative when we get them back in the lab. Um, and then uh, for the, the floor uh, resurfacing unit, if it does, uh, the hypothesis that uh, it's volcanic in origin is shown to be um, uh, accurate, then we can get uh, uh, age dates on the samples and get a better understanding of the absolute chronology of early or of, of the uh, Mars uh, geologic record. So we can you what we do now is use um, the density of impact craters that are superposed on a unit to get a rough estimate of age with the chronology actually tied to Apollo samples. Um, but if we bring back samples that we can date uh, from uh, Mars's history and, and, Mar and a known location on Mars's surface, we can better pin down the the um, timing of certain events on Mars and the absolute timing of things. And then even things um, outside of Jezero, you're saying then? Absolutely. What this what the date will be able to do is is provide a pinpoint uh, that we can say, okay, we know what the crater density is on this unit, and now we know actually from lab measurements what the age of this sample is and so we can tie in uh, to a chronology of what the the um, early martian surface uh, or not necessarily early martian surface but what uh, the ages are on, on the surface of mars and so that can then be it, it uh, ported to other locations on mars where we can just get the impact crater density Wow. Well, that, now I'm getting more excited for this mission. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, the the samples are going to be fantastic. It's interesting, um, just from a personal perspective, for me to to think about the samples, uh, because I'm not a sample scientist, and so I know what the questions are that one would ask, uh, and I, I I don't know all of the questions, but I have a. a a vague or loose understanding of what these questions are that the sample scientists would want to do. But when these samples come back, if hopefully they come back in my lifetime, they're not going to be coming to my research group to be analyzed. They're going to be going to the top analytical field facilities across the world. Um, and so it, it's sort of an interesting part of the, um, the s broad scope of what this mission will be able to do uh, that will be truly um, interdisciplinary across the geosciences. And so when the samples come back, I'll be sitting with you anxiously awaiting what the results are from, <laughs> from, from the top labs in the world. Uh, so so it, that's it's sort of an interesting perspective. I think if you talk to a, a sample scientist, they'd give you the other side of, well, you know, I, I I don't really care what happens on the ground as much. I just want those samples back. Whereas right. for me, I'm most interested in the science of when the rover is exploring on the ground and, and what we can say um, from these outcrops. 
on the surface. Right, so right. it's kind of a juxtaposition, I think. Yeah, well, that's that's very cool about how how uh, the, the mission you know grows beyond you and your team and and can can you know, have an impact in so many areas. That's it's inspiring, right? Absolutely, it is remarkable. Yeah, and and the number of people that will be involved in this mission and be involved in the science and particularly be involved in the samples that return, uh, you know, one in a hundred years, it would be fun to look back and count the number of PhD theses and <laughs> scientific publications that come from mission data as well as samples, return samples. Right. I wouldn't even have, I wouldn't hazard to guess what the number would be, but I'm sure it will be large. More from Tim when we return. The holidays are almost here, and just in time, we're introducing some sweet new merchandise to the Wee Martian shop. So why not gift yourself? Looking for something bright to take your thoughts away from the dreary winter? There's a new XMR's design showcasing the stereo color views of its camera cassis. It's our most colorful design yet. And if it's branded merchandise you're looking for, we've got new Red Planet Review shirts, our weekly patron-exclusive podcast. Plus, the Review shirt and all the We Martians logo shirts are now available in women's tank tops. And we couldn't forget about our new winter space helmets. Yes, you heard that right. You might call it a toque, a knit cap, or a beanie, but either way, they're awesome and available in four different colors. So head over to shop.wemartians.com today and see all the new stuff and hit the holidays in style. Mars style. So I'd like to pivot a bit and talk about kind of the the process of site selection, because I I find it very interesting. I like to understand the nuts and bolts of how we do science on Mars. Um, my, my first question is kind of, you know, which came first? Were you studying Jezero and then decided to pitch it as a candidate? Or did you hear about, you know, the open candidacy and say, I got to go find a spot to, to put in there? Yeah, so it was definitely the former. So I was, so the first landing site workshop, I think, was in 2014. Um, and I was a fourth year graduate student at the time. Um and for one of the chapters of my dissertation, I had already been working on Jezero. Um, so I was working on this question of, can we, at least using remote sensing, do some type of provenance study? Can we track material from the source in the watershed to the sink in the, um, in the basin and in the delta deposit? So using uh, visible near-infrared spectroscopy from the CRISM instrument, I was mapping out units in the watershed and in the the delta deposit and comparing the mineralogy because I was interested in how the material was transported, whether there was alteration associated with the transport. So this was a a major chapter of my PhD thesis. And so I was doing this work already because the site has great exposure and uh, very interesting in uh, geologically diverse watershed. Um, And so I was doing this and then uh, my advisors uh, Jack Mustard and Jim Head sort of mentioned that uh, this landing site selection process was going to be starting um, and there was going to be this first workshop in 2014 um, and 
they encouraged me to get involved with uh, with Jezero as a potential landing site because I was doing work on it. Um, and then in talking with colleagues, um, I think I actually missed the first the initial call for for <laughs> for applications where they wanted you know a talk title. Um, and because it wasn't really something that was on my radar, I'm a I was a third or fourth year graduate student. This feels a little bit above. Uh, or at the time, I think it felt above my pay grade to be thinking about, you know, where to send the next Mars rover. Um, and so it wasn't immediately on my radar. I was focused on getting my work done. Um, and then, so I'd missed that call. But uh, as it turned out, Bethany Elman, who uh, is a, was a former graduate student at Brown and at the time uh, and currently is a professor at Caltech, uh, had submitted Jezero. She'd done some work on Jezero during her PhD as well. Uh, and so she'd submitted Jezero as as a potential landing sites, along with a, a number uh, of other sites she was working on. That first workshop was uh, very much uh, uh, open call where, where there were many dozen sites proposed. And so it, lots of people had multiple sites they were proposing, places that they thought were interesting. Um, and so Bethany and Jack and I... Um, Bethany was visiting Brown and we had a conversation and I was showing her the work I was doing and she said, Oh, that's really interesting. You know, at this landing site workshop, why don't you give the presentation? You're the one um, that's been working on it most recently. Um, you know, you're doing this new work. Um, I'm presenting other sites, so you should go ahead and present. Uh, you, you, she had a, a, a slot for a talk. Um, that she'd initially submitted and she's like, why don't you, you should give that talk. And so that was, I thought that was very gracious of her to give the opportunity to a, a fourth year graduate student. Um, and so I um, gave the talk at that first landing site workshop um, and then uh, continued to work on Jezero mostly for the science. So I, I think, I just think it's an amazing site. There's a lot we can learn there, even from orbit about the early sedimentary record of Mars, which is a, a broad area that I'm incredibly fascinated by. And a lot of my work um, is uh, focused on. And so I was doing a couple other Jezero projects and so sort of got spun in that way through um, all of the landing sites. So I ended up uh, speaking at all four of the landing sites about Jezero, although as it as the number of sites got whittled down and Jezero kept moving forward, um, other people would speak about Jezero as well, different aspects of it. Um, but uh, I sort of kind of fell into the position of a kind of um, cheerleader. <laughs> be, yeah, <laughs> like I main uh, like one of the main advocates is what I would say. Okay. I was doing, yeah, which is, yeah, I was uh, uh, showing people what the science is at Jezero and showing all of the interesting things, Some of, uh, a lot of which is work that had been done prior to me and some of which is work that I was doing at the time and, you know, furthering our understanding of this location. Um, and so uh, I w feel vo very fortunate to have been afforded the opportunity to, to have my work be relevant to this process and um on the process as a whole i think it um speaks volumes to 
the um, openness of the community to hear all ideas in that they let me as a fourth year graduate student and then you know I moved up but even at the fourth landing site workshop I, like just a few months ago I'm still a postdoc and they're give I am afforded uh, the same amount of time to talk as tenured faculty at prestigious institutions and everybody um, gets to present their science uh, and I, I think that's a really cool aspect of the site selection process for the first one completely open call every single talk they accepted there were landing sites that they allowed people to talk about that um, it was clear we're not going to meet the engineering requirements but still they wanted to hear about the science so um, and I think that's fantastic I think it's the right way to do it uh, and it was just a really uh, exciting and interesting uh, and fun process to be involved with over the last four ish years so that's a good good lesson for all the uh all the listeners out there even even some rando canadian can pick a mars landing site right <laughs> yeah 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 who, who am i right like, <laughs> yeah yeah i i did it <laughs> i don't it feels very surreal and i i also think that um i i agree with that and it's like funny to think about but i i also do think that um I don't really think I did anything. <laughs> I kind of just showed stuff, right? I didn't make Jezero more interesting. Jezero and the outcrop within the basin and the outcrop that the rover will be able to explore is as interesting as it always has been. It's always been that interesting. Um, it's, I feel, the role of... Uh, mostly of showing people look this hey this is this is super cool y'all like this is awesome <laughs> uh and so you know you, you, that's what i think the the role of the advocate is is showing um the community how interesting the science is that's available there i i didn't make the science available there i just sort of showed that it is available there if that makes sense how uh, how did you find out it had been selected <laughs> I was listening to the press uh, conference call. Wow, like really? Everybody... Yeah, they, uh, there's no um, no inside scoop. I was listening to it's in my office at UT uh, and called into their or pulled up on my computer the teleconference call um, where they were talking about it. And uh, luckily, so it, you know it's scheduled for an hour, and my fear is that. I'm going to be sitting there for 35 minutes while they do some preamble about <laughs> what mission's going to be like and all of this, and that I'm just going to be sweating bullets. Um, but luckily for me, uh, Thomas Serbukin, like the third thing he said was, "Oh, I've selected Jezreel." Yeah, so yeah. Um, he he said it very very early in the conference call, which was very nice for me. Um, and I think so they even I, had yeah, like those. Sitting... They had like the the press conference site kind of went up a few minutes ahead of time and it had a big map of Jezero. So it was kind of a giveaway, I think right at the beginning. Someone told me, yeah, someone told me about that the other day and I, I, I hadn't picked up on that. <laughs> so, uh, I, even if I did, I think I still would have wanted to hear the 
the Zerbukan say that Jezero was the choice just to make sure it wasn't some glitch or something like that on the website. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so that's that's how I found out. And then lots of texting and messaging with family and friends and colleagues who I've worked on about this, lots of excitement. Right, so right. It's a very fun day. Um, so we're, you know, we're, well, let's see, two, well, a year and a half to launch, really, right? But then maybe you say, yeah, call it 26 months to landing. What, what work Something has, like that, yeah. Yeah, what work has to be done in the meantime? Like, what's, what's next for, for getting this site ready? And what is your role going to be in all that, you know, in the interim period and then when the mission starts? Yeah, so, um, uh, I think a lot of the work that comes next is probably really detailed mapping by um, probably folks at, at JPL and uh, NASA to get a really good set of potential traverse plans. And this is all um, my um, intuition. I, I don't actually know what the team, uh, the next steps are for the team. Um, but I would think they'll want to do a lot of um, potential traverse planning. Uh, one of the big things about this mission is collecting these samples. Um, and we see from curiosity that operating a drill on Mars is very difficult and takes a lot of time. And I mean, just saying operating a drill on Mars, right? It's a, clearly going to be an engineering challenge. And so uh, I think being efficient in choosing their locations to explore is is a major goal uh, for the team. And I think that's also one of the reasons that uh, Jezero was so favored um, because it has such a good analog uh, on Earth where we understand the relative makeup of deltaic outcrop because it's been so well studied on Earth. So we have a very good starting exploration model of where to go and what to explore. Uh, and I imagine they'll be um, trying to uh, supplement that with the highest resolution data, so high-rise scale mapping of what's there and uh, what are the hypotheses for what it might look like on the ground. Um, so that's what I would imagine the team is doing, but uh, and then as well as you know traversability studies where they can drive where they can't, um, how, what will be the easiest way to get between different locations. Um, for myself, the, the role is um, still up in the air. So um, typically, so the, the science team um, for all of the instruments was chosen long before the, the landing site was chosen. These are people, uh, scientists and engineers that have been involved in um, creating, calibrating, testing the technology for the instruments on Mars 2020. Um, the Typically, the way uh, NASA operates these missions is um, in the year preceding mission operations, they open up a call for participating scientists. So these are scientists from the community that would bring new expertise into the um, uh, onto the mission team, uh, new scientific expertise uh, from their background and their interests to help uh, explore the site and to help. Uh, do the science and achieve the science goals of the mission. And so certainly I'll be putting in a proposal for um, for that program, but I imagine lots of people will be. So it will be a very competitive program and I'll 
certainly hope to be selected to be on the science team but uh if not that i mean that's okay too and i'll be very excited to see the first uh images come down regardless so uh hopefully i'll be able to be involved in the mission at some level as a participating scientist but that is yet to be seen so uh i'll have to put a lot of focus into <laughs> writing a good a good participating scientist proposal to try and get on the team well we've all got our fingers crossed for you <laughs> thank you very much uh, i will need all the help i can get so <laughs> tim this has been a, a really great conversation um i'm yeah i hope so i'm more excited than i ever have been about uh, jezero crater good even though i was reasonably confident i i think i've told you at the last lpc that i just had a spot waiting for you when nasa you know made the right decision and i guess I was right. I'll I'll take the uh, prediction credit on that. <laughs> yeah, you kept saying that, and I was worried that Jezra wasn't going to be selected, and then I was never going to be on the podcast, right? And you uh, you would say, <laughs> "Oh, well, I'm sorry." You know, I, I said we'd do it when Jezra was selected, and then it wasn't selected, and and here I am left left out to dry, never being on We Martians. So I'm glad to finally do it, and especially under these circumstances. Um, well, like I said, we're we're crossing our fingers that you uh, you nab a good position and you get to work on this uh, this mission a little more, and uh, maybe we'll have to connect in a in a year or two to see uh, how that's going. That sounds great. Well, that's all we have today, Martians, and well, that's all we have for 2018. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Tim and are as excited about the rover's mission as I am. But I want to hear what you think. Are you happy with the landing site choice? I'd love to hear from you. So send me an email at info at wemartians.com or a tweet at we underscore Martians. If you enjoyed today's show, consider joining over 100 other listeners on Patreon. You'll get bonus content for as little as $1 per month, like additional interview audio from this conversation. Tim and I talked about being a scientist in Canada and the challenges of finding a job there. There's a lot of talent crossing into the United States for opportunities, and it's a really interesting problem that uh, doesn't quite have a solution yet. So head over to patreon.com slash wemartians to join and listen in to all the bonus content back catalog. We're still working hard to put together the We Martians travel grant, which will formally kick off once we reach our $450 per month pledge. We're so close, and we're actually having some difficulty crossing that finish line, so if you've been on the fence, now's a great time to join up. If we can reach our goal for January, there may still be time to have the grant ready for the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in March. We want to help a student travel to that conference and showcase their work, which isn't always financially accessible to early career academics. But if that's not your thing, remember to hit up our shop at shop.wemartians.com or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. All of that helps the show, helps others find us, and it's a great way to support. That's all for today. Have a great holiday. Have a happy new year. We're going to take a short break through December and early January, but we'll be back soon to talk about Mars in 2019. So at Aries, Martians. Mm-hmm.